in the third panel discussion at the Digital Reform Insights and Regulators Perspectives Seminar. Aoife McArdle moderates a discussion on online content, new areas of regulation. The legal context for the discussion is the GDPR and the Digital Services Act, and the topics include children's data, harmful content as it relates to children, online advertising and sponsored content, dark patterns and operational compliance under the Digital Services Act. We're going to take a look at some of the new areas of regulation we discussed earlier in a little bit more detail. I'm joined on stage by Aoife, Alison, David and Lorraine, and all of us are associates in the technology group. What we're going to look at today are some topics that have traditionally been hot areas under data protection, and then see how these concepts like children and online advertising are addressed under new forms of regulation. We're also going to dip into the operational side of compliance to see what the picture looks like and how you might be able to leverage some of your existing data protection compliance to meet these new obligations. There's going to be some detail in the discussion, so you're welcome to take notes as we go, but equally feel free to just sit back and listen to the discussion. So to kick things off, we're going to look at our first regulatory theme, and it's one that was covered quite a bit in the session earlier about protecting children online. I'm going to come to you first on this, Aoife. I know in the panel earlier we heard about regulatory cooperation and how this fits with protection of children. And we know that children's data has traditionally been an area of interest for the DPC. So I was wondering if you could take us through in maybe a little bit more detail what measures have been played out in that area. Sure, thanks Eva. I'm just going to speak a little bit about the fundamentals. So the DPC's fundamentals for a child-oriented approach to data processing, or the fundamentals for short, were released in December 2021. They were released after a detailed public consultation, including with children. So the DPC engaged with kids through their teachers, their parents and guardians, and also through youth groups. The fundamentals apply to online and offline services that are intended for, directed at, or likely to be accessed by children. The regulatory focus on children is not limited to the DPC, and the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK has also released the Children's Code. About the fundamentals and the Children's Code categorise persons under the age of 18 as children. So the fundamentals set out 14 fundamentals that organisations that process children's data are supposed to comply with. And the principle of the best interests of the child underpins all of the fundamentals. So of the 14 fundamentals that are covered by the DPC, what are the really key points that are coming out of those? So I'm going to mention two things here. The first being the floor of protection. So the floor of protection is the first fundamental. And basically what that means is that organisations can choose to provide a so-called floor of protection so that all users get the same high level of data protection irrespective of their age. Alternatively, organisations can choose to adopt a risk-based approach to verifying the age of users so that all child users get the same high protection that's provided for in the fundamentals. The DPC do note that there will be a higher burden on internet and technology companies if they do take that risk-based approach to ensure that they are protecting children with that approach. The second point then to mention relates to profiling. So the DPC is clear that organisations should not profile children engage in automated decision-making in relation to them or otherwise process their personal data for the purposes of marketing or advertising unless they can clearly show that it's in the best interests of the child or advertising. That's obviously due to the, you know, the particular vulnerability and susceptibility of children to behavioural advertising. So the DPC do recognise that this will be easy to do in respect of services that are directed only to children 
but it will be harder to do in mixed-use internet environments. And the DPC is clear that organisations in those environments, they must be able to identify and protect child users or else implement a no-profiling policy across the board. And it's also worth noting that the Digital Services Act prohibits advertising based on profiling by online platforms if the online platform is reasonably certain that the user is a child. Thanks very much, Aoife. I think it's really clear from the fundamentals and from the discussion we heard earlier on that the DPC and the Online Safety Commissioner are particularly concerned about children considering their vulnerability. So, Alison, I might come to you next. And I know that harmful content was mentioned a good bit in the session this morning as a new regulatory concept that might have a particular angle for children. I was wondering maybe if you could walk us through the harmful content concept as it relates specifically to children. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Aoife. Just to kind of run through the two categories. So the first category of harmful content provided for under the Online Safety and Media Regulation Act is content relating to criminal offences. That's things like child sex abuse material, terrorist content, content likely to incite hatred, that type of thing. But having a particular focus on children, I think some of the kind of more illegal content we're looking at there is relating to stalking maybe, or the sharing of intimate images, which are kind of regulated under separate pieces of legislation. So I think, you know, we're all familiar with these types of content as being restricted and the sharing of it should be restricted under pre-existing legislation. And then to move to the second category of harmful content, that's where it gets a bit broader. And to pick up on a question raised by somebody in the audience earlier, there is that risk threshold. So it's the harmful but legal content. And again, just to pick up on what that targets, it's things like cyberbullying, promotion of disordered eating, promotion of self-harm, suicide, that type of thing. So I think there's a clear focus there on harms relating to children, in particular when you factor in the risk assessment. So the risk test is that the content will create a risk to the life of an individual or a significant risk to the physical or mental health of an individual and that that risk is reasonably foreseeable. So of course it's possible that anyone who's exposed to that type of content online, there's a risk of harm to any of us. But I think we'll all acknowledge that there's a greater risk to children given their particular vulnerability. So when you factor in the risk test, I think that's where organizations will be expected to consider who's consuming the content and the particular vulnerabilities of those individuals and the risks they're exposed to. So the difference is that the first category relating to criminal offenses, that's automatically considered harmful content, but the second category has to meet that risk test. That's really interesting, Alison. And I think that risk assessment is going to be really important in terms of the enhancement of protections for children online. I was wondering, is there anything else that's coming down the tracks in terms of specific protections for children in the OSMRA? There's numerous explicit references to children in the Act itself. So firstly, I suppose, in relation to age and appropriate content, that's something that Commissioner Hodnett focused on earlier. And again, you're taking into account there the age of the individual consuming the content and whether it's appropriate for a particular age group. So that's a clear focus again on minors. When the Commission is designating a category of content as potentially harmful, so that's that second category of harmful content under the Act, the Commission is obliged under the Act to have particular regard to the interests of children and protecting children. So they have to look at the type of content through the lens of a child user and whether that would be potentially harmful to a child, and the Act specifies that. 
Similarly, they must develop online safety codes and they'll be the basis for kind of enforcing um, under the Act and the obligations that organisations have to comply with. And again, when developing those online safety codes, the Act specifies that they must consider the interests of children and protecting children in particular. And just to mention one more thing is the Youth Advisory Committee. So the Commission is obliged to establish a Youth Advisory Committee within one year of the Commission having been established. And that Youth Advisory Committee must be made up of half the members of the committee must be no more than 25 years old. So that envisages that young people will have a direct role in supporting and advising the Commission in the exercise of the Commission's functions to the extent that those functions relate to protecting children in particular. The DPC engage directly with children and their parents and guardians when developing those fundamentals. And the same kind of concept is envisaged here, that young people will inform the Commission of the types of harms that are online and what they think is appropriate in terms of obligations that should be on platforms and, and organisations. So I think it's clear that the focus on children and protecting children online is a key area of focus. And it's not just in relation to children's privacy, it's broader than that now. And it's protecting children generally online from exposure to harmful content and the risks that are posed to them. And I think we can all agree that it's a really important issue. Thanks very much for that, Alison. I think between Aoife's comments on the fundamentals and your comments on the new protections there, it's clear to see that a more holistic picture of the protection of children online is emerging. And it's a picture that extends beyond kind of just privacy alone. Yeah. But it's also, it's interesting to see that both the DPC and Commission <laughs> Demon are going to benefit from the advice of Gen Z consultants as they go on this journey in developing protections. I'd like to, to leave children there for the minute and to go to our second kind of regulatory theme which is going to be online advertising. I know, Aoife, in your comments about children earlier, you mentioned specific protections for children in relation to online advertising. But I just wanted to pick up on just the advertising aspect of that point. And I was wondering if you could tell us too about recent changes to the online advertising landscape. And I'm thinking in particular about kind of recent regulatory decisions that, that touch on this space. Sure. So as you'll all be aware, the DPC released two decisions in January of this year, both relating to Meta, one relating to Instagram and one relating to Facebook. Uh, both decisions focused on Meta's reliance on contractual necessity as the lawful basis for processing personal data in connection with targeted and behavioural advertising. So in considering contractual necessity and in particular necessity, the DPC found that you have to have reference to the specific contract in question between the controller and its users. Here, the Facebook terms of use and also the Instagram terms of use. And also you have to have reference to the so-called core function of the contract. The DPC looked at Meta's model and found that Meta's model is an advertising model. So the nature of the services that are signed up to by users is funded by advertising. Therefore, advertising actually goes to the fundamental object and the substance of the contract in question, and which meant that Meta could rely on contractual necessity as a lawful basis for that processing. And when the EDPV came into the picture, did they agree with that analysis, the DPCs? No. <laughs> so probably no surprise there, but the European Data Protection Board did not agree with the DPC's draft conclusions in that respect. In particular, the EDPB took a kind of stricter view of the core function of the contract, and they placed particular emphasis on the fact that the contract could still be performed without the processing taking place. Um, furthermore, they also looked at Meta's model, and they said that the main purpose of the services was for users to be able to communicate with each other, 
and the fact that Meta decided to offer its services for free to users in exchange for generating income through advertising did not mean that the processing was necessary for the actual contract. The EDPB also pointed to the right of data subjects to object to processing of their personal data for direct marketing purposes, including profiling under Article 21 of the GDPR, as supporting the conclusion that the processing could not be necessary under the contract. So in conclusion then, the EDPB found that Meta could not rely on contractual necessity for this processing, and the DPC was obliged to follow their conclusion under the Article 65 dispute resolution mechanism. Thanks very much for that, Aoife. It's quite interesting to see how the EDPB's interpretation of the contract can have such a dramatic impact on the approach that's taken by the controller. I might bring you into the discussion here, David, as I know you've been considering the DSA in detail for a little while now. Does the DSA deal with advertising specifically and the, the use of personal data for the platforms that the DSA applies to? Yeah, thanks, Aoife. So the DSA is introducing specific restrictions on how personal data can be used for the purposes of presenting advertising online. And Eva's already mentioned one of those restrictions with respect to recipients of the service where the online platform is aware with reasonable certainty that they're a minor. In those circumstances, they'll be subject to a, an outright prohibition on presenting advertising based on profiling. But there's also extended protections then for the rest of us, us adult recipients of the service. It's a bit of a mouthful. But for us as well, there's now a new restriction being imposed in terms of the presentation of advertisement based on profiling, which uses special category data as an input. And so on the face of it, that seems relatively straightforward, but we have had that CJU decision within the past year or so, which suggests that sometimes special category data can be inferred from other um, sources of information. So the complex, it could actually be quite complex to implement this in practice. It's really interesting in terms of the restriction on profiling, not just in terms of the personal data of minors, but also the special category data of adults. Is there anything else coming out of the DSA that's going to affect the online advertising landscape? Yeah, so the DSA has introduced specific rules for, again, for online platforms. So if you're representing another type of intermediary service, they're not applicable to you. But for online platforms, they're required to be more transparent with respect to their advertising. And the goal of the DSA is to empower us individuals to understand when the content we're being presented with is an advertisement. And once we understand that we're seeing an ad, they have provisions in there to help us better understand why we're being targeted by that ad, uh, in addition to who the ad is being presented by and if a different person uh, who's paying for the ad. So maybe just to step through those four elements briefly, in terms of better understanding that the information you're seeing is an ad. Individuals should be able to identify in a clear, concise, ambiguous, we all know this sort of language from GDPR, manner and in real time that the information is an advertisement. And that will be achieved primarily through the use of prominent markings. And then once we understand that we're seeing an ad, online platforms will be required to provide us with information directly from the ad, which will allow us to better understand the main parameters that were used to target us and where applicable, how we can influence those parameters in the future. And so when we understand that we're seeing an ad and why we're seeing it, we should also have information on whose behalf the ad is being presented for by. So I think that's, in the vast majority of cases, be pretty straightforward. You see your ads for, ad for cornflakes, you know it's Kellogg's. But I think on social issues, I think that would be pretty interesting where there might not be such a clear connection between the person presenting the advertisement and the message itself. 
And so that's where the final <coughs> element kicks in, in terms of providing information on who is paying for the ad. And I, I think, that, you know, again, on those social issues and political issues, advertising in that area is going to be a really effective tool for improving transparency. That's really interesting, David. Uh, in the new world, the DSA, we're going to get to learn a lot more about what we're seeing online, why we're seeing it, and also who's paying for us to see it. Just thinking of kind of another element of how things are promoted online and thinking about user-generated or influencer content, is there anything in the DSA that speaks to that kind of element of online promotion? Uh, yes, there is. So again, it's rules that apply to online platforms specifically. And the goal here is quite similar. It's that we should understand when we're seeing sponsored content. So obviously the online platform, it has no way of knowing when information is uploaded, that it is an ad. But what they are required to do is, is to facilitate individuals to declare that the content they're adding to the platform is or contains commercial communications. And then once the online platform has that declaration, then they can make th sure through the use of prominent markings that we as individuals can see that we're dealing with sponsored content here. I'm conscious that there's quite a lot of regulation that's coming for VLOPs and VLOZIs specifically. So is there anything specific for them in this kind of advertising transparency space? Yeah, there is. So for those VLOPs and VLOZIs, so again, those with 45 million monthly active recipients or more, they're required now to put in place a repository of online advertising. And the repository I think would be really interesting. It's required to store information on all the ads that were presented by the VLOP or VLOS within the last 12 months, in addition to all the ads that are currently being presented on the platform. The repository will have to store the content of the ad itself, so we'll have a record of what was presented. It will have to include all the information I've discussed in terms of on whose behalf is the ad being presented and who was paying for it. But it will then also have to include other information, such as the performance and reach of the ad. So on a member state by member state basis, the repository will have to set out how many people were exposed to the ad, and specifically for the group of individuals who were targeted, whatever their personal characteristics were, the repository will also have to provide information on how many of those were presented with the ad. Thanks, David. It's really interesting how transparency is such a driver for all of those requirements that we're seeing kind of across all of the different entities that are regulated by the DSA. Just to keep that transparency theme going, but maybe go in a little bit of a darker direction. Alison, I might come to you on the topic of dark patterns. It's something that we've heard a good bit about in the GDPR context, you know, behaviors that maybe try and nudge certain reactions from online users. And I know that there's specific regulation coming for them in the DSA. So I was wondering if you could maybe unpack that dark patterns concept a little bit for us. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Aoife. So as you said, I think dark patterns and deceptive patterns, whatever you want to call them, they're concepts that we're familiar with from existing data protection law and consumer protection law as well, but they're now regulated under the DSA. So it makes the situation a bit more complex in terms of what piece of legislation do you fall under? I might just begin by kind of setting out what we mean when we say dark patterns and have a look at kind of the context that we're used to seeing the, the dark patterns come up in. So there's no one definition of dark patterns across all of these pieces of legislation but it gets at any kind of practice that manipulates or deceives an individual and kind of nudges them like you said to make a choice that they wouldn't have otherwise made in particular if that choice has a negative impact on the individual so the gdpr and the e-privacy directive and consumer protection law 
do form part of the current legal framework that regulate the use of dark patterns, but they don't explicitly refer or prohibit dark patterns. But I suppose the context that we're used to this coming up in, in the context of GDPR at least, is in relation to consent. So if an organisation is looking to rely on consent as a legal basis for processing data under the GDPR, or looking to get consent to cookies for the purposes of advertising, if an organisation presents that choice to a user in a way that kind of gives promotion to the opt-in option or makes it very difficult to change the default settings, that could be a dark pattern because, you know, the information wasn't presented in a neutral way. And as a result of that, the consent that the organisation tried to get might be invalid because it wasn't freely given, it wasn't um, informed and it didn't comply with the Article 5 principles in the GDPR on fairness and transparency, like David mentioned as well. So that's the context that we're used to seeing dark patterns being regulated at the moment. And how are dark patterns going to be regulated under the DSA? So under the DSA, there's an explicit prohibition on the use of deceptive patterns in a way that makes the user make a choice they wouldn't have otherwise made. And I think that's helpful in one sense because it does make the prohibition explicit. So it's gone further in a way than what we've seen under the GDPR and consumer protection law. But the, the kind of caveat to that, I suppose, is that the prohibition in the DSA says that it won't apply to practices that otherwise fall within the scope of the GDPR or existing consumer protection law. So that begs the question then of what is left for the DSA to catch. And as you know, I've spent some time thinking about this <laughs> and I don't have a perfect answer to it. And I think all that immediately comes to mind for me is kind of business to business relations that would be caught because they're not otherwise caught by consumer protection law. So on the one hand, I think it's a bit of an unsatisfactory position because I think the GDPR and consumer protection law haven't been particularly successful at preventing the widespread use of dark patterns. So by giving primacy to the GDPR and consumer protection law and the DSA, it begs the question of what effect the prohibition in the DSA will actually have. On the other hand, and like I said, I do think it's helpful that the, the prohibition is explicit this time. It does clarify the legislative intent around dark patterns. So I think, you know, not that it was ever in doubt that these things are not allowed. That's made clear now. And I think instead of maybe getting bogged down like I did in the legal or academic discussion about what the DSA will catch, it probably is better for organisations to take a practical approach and just focus on preventing these types of practices and patterns on your user interfaces and present material in a way that's neutral and don't promote one choice over another. So regardless of what piece of legislation it might fall under, I think the intent is clear that it shouldn't be done. So to come back to David's piece on transparency, transparency is a key concept that we're familiar with, obviously under GDPR, it's also a key concept in the DSA. So transparency is key and that relates to dark patterns and also fairness under um, the Article 5 in the GDPR and under consumer protection law. So I think that should be the focus rather than getting lost in the theoretical thought process that I did. Thanks, Alison. So from a legislative drafting perspective, it's not exactly the Empire Strikes Back, but some practical guidance for people there in terms of the intent of that prohibition. Yeah. So I know we've been discussing regulatory themes around children and online advertising, which have traditionally been hot topics under data protection law. 
But I think now we'll move to our third regulatory theme here, and it's going to be operational compliance under the DSA. Lorraine, I might turn to you and bring you into the discussion here, as I know you've been thinking about the new obligations that are going to be on different entities that are called by the DSA and how entities, and I'm sure many of the people in the room, can give operational effect to a lot of these obligations. Can you talk to us a little bit about the compliance framework that, that's coming? Yeah, thanks Aoife. So there's no doubt that there are going to be increased compliance obligations coming on organisations on the back of the DSA. So, you know, people have called out some of the obligations already. You know, Dave has gone through a lot of the um, obligations around advertising. So I think it might be helpful to look at the inverted pyramid of compliance. So if we look here, so at the bottom, we have all intermediary services. Then we have the hosting services, online platforms, and then VLOPs and VLOSIs at the top. So the nature and the breadth of your obligations will increase as you go up that pyramid. Now, I will just say that the VLOSIs are slightly different in terms of the cumulative nature, but for the most part, we're talking about if you're an all, inter all intermediary services have some obligations, then if you're hosting service provider and above, you have additional, and that's kind of how it works. So, so far, the um, designation of VLOPs and VLOSIs, so there's only been 19 designated by the Commission so far. So we're only talking about 19 entities at the moment at the top. So it might make sense to, to start at the bottom and talk about the compliance obligations from the bottom up. So at the bottom of this pyramid, we're basically looking at the largest number of entities that will be affected, but the smallest number of obligations. As we climb the pyramid, we get smaller in terms of entities, but bigger in terms of obligations. And that's what you can see at the top of that inverted pyramid there. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I might call out three of the obligations that apply to, to all intermediate service providers. So we're at the very bottom. So the first is the appointing a single point of contact. So all intermediary services will have to appoint single points of contact to deal with the commission, to deal with the European board, um, and to deal with member state authorities, and also to deal with the service recipients directly and the obligations to deal with them rapidly. So um, that, that's something that they'll have to do. Additionally, a concept we'll be familiar with under the GDPR is if you don't have an establishment in the EU, but you offer your services in the union, you'll have to appoint a legal representative. And I suppose the one difference with the legal representative that needs to be appointed under the DSA is that they will be personally liable for infringements of the DSA by the organisation, because I think the GDPR was a little bit unclear on that point. The second thing to talk about is the terms and conditions. So all intermediary services must describe their content moderation practices, the procedures they use, the tools they use. And also if the service is primarily or predominantly directed at children, those terms will have to be understandable and will have to set out any conditions or restrictions on the use of those services by children. Now, as you go up the pyramid, the VLOPs will have additional obligations when it comes to what's in their terms and conditions, but the obligation to have the terms and conditions is universal. And I suppose the third thing to talk about then is transparency reporting. So this is about the content moderation activities that the organisation undertakes. Um, they will be produced um, at least annually. They'll, they'll touch on things like the number of complaints that the organisation has handled, what automated means that they use, and the notifications that they've, or the notices they've received to act on illegal content. Again, the, the frequency and the content of those reports goes, it changes as you go up the pyramid, but the obligation to, to produce the reports is universal. Okay, so the universal building blocks at the bottom of our pyramid, we have our uh, points of contact or legal representatives, terms and conditions in respect of content moderation, and then the transparency reporting. So if you take us up a level on the pyramid, Lorraine, what are we looking at there? 
So if we go to hosting services then, I was referred to earlier the notice and takedown mechanisms. So if you're a hosting service, an online platform, VLOP, you'll need to have an easily accessible way that individuals can notify you of illegal content on the platform. And you also have to have processes in place to deal with those notices in a timely, diligent, objective and non-arbitrary manner. There's also an obligation to produce statements of reasons. So if you're going to remove illegal content or restrict service recipients, you'll have to produce a statement of reasons setting out how you came to that decision. So these are things that organisations will have to look at resourcing in the background. So your next level of the pyramid, we have your notice and takedown regime is the key obligation there. So if you take us up a level again, Lorraine, what, what do we see? So if we go up again, we're looking at things like um, complaint and redress mechanisms. So under the DSA, users will have new rights in relation to availing of internal complaints mechanisms, seeking out-of-court settlements, and seeking compensation for infringements of the DSA. So online platforms and VLOPs will need to ensure that they have sufficient measures in place to operationalise those. The other thing is that if your platform allows for the conclusion of contracts between traders and consumers, they'll have obligations as regards trader traceability. So this means that platforms will have to collect certain information in relation to their traders and assess that and analyse that information. And they'll also have to keep that information for a certain period of time after the conclusion of their relationship with that trader. So the kind of emphasis there on ensuring that illegal or illegal or counterfeit products aren't sold online, for example, is, is kind of one of the things that that's getting at and kind of enhancing consumer protection in that way. Okay, so compliance obligations here, they're getting a bit more onerous in terms of what needs to be done to implement that redress mechanism and the trader traceability program you outlined there. Dare I ask you to take us up another level to the top of the pyramid now? Yeah, so if we go to the top, then we're talking about those 19 entities that have been designated so far. And they'll have to do things like prepare risk assessments, um, conduct annual audits, and also to establish a compliance function. And I think the establishment of the compliance function has been something that's kind of been, been covered a lot in, in the commentary about the DSA. So the risk assessments, what organisations have to do is they have to identify and analyse the risks that are associated with the functioning and use of their platforms. So the DSA does set out some specific risks that need to be addressed, such as the dissemination of illegal content and any foreseeable negative effects that would have on the protection of public health or the protection of minors, as we talked about earlier. They'll have to be produced at least annually. Then the annual independent audits are audits for the VLOPs compliance with their due diligence obligations under the DSA, but also any commitments that they've made under codes of conduct or um, crisis protocols. And then the establishment of the compliance function. So it's kind of similar to how I suppose the DPO is under the GDPR. We have to have an independent kind of compliance function. They'll be the people that will be assisting with the risk assessments and monitoring the organization's compliance with the DSA. They, similar to the GPO, they have to have certain qualifications. You know, they have to have certain experience in order to carry out that role. So there are obviously more obligations on VLOPs and VLOPs as well, but they're some of the key ones. So I, I guess to circle back, at the bottom of the pyramid, we have these universal obligations. And then as the, the number of users of these platforms will generally ascend as you ascend the pyramid as well. So, so that's kind of how it, it works with like building blocks. Thanks very much for that, Lorraine. I think that, that pyramid structure with large number of entities, small number of obligations, inverted top with large numbers of obligations and small numbers of entities, I think that paints a really clear picture in terms of how the compliance framework is going to work. I might bring you back into the discussion now, David, as I know you've been thinking about kind of the back office or the engineering aspect of a lot of the obligations Lorraine took us through on the pyramid there. What are some of the, the big technical lifts that you've identified in your review of the DSA? Thanks, Aoife. Yeah, so I suppose it's a corollary of what Lorraine has just talked us through. 
depending on the type of intermediary service you provide, the fewer obligations you have, the easier your technical lifts should be. So if you're exclusively at the bottom of that pyramid, you're providing mere conduit services or caching services, thankfully you should have hopefully a relatively easy implementation. As you move on then to hosting service providers, still some of it is quite good news from a DSA perspective. I mean, this is an evolution on an existing liability framework regime that has existed since the early 2000s under the e-commerce directive. So you might already have systems in place. So it's about looking at some of the changes in the DSA and thinking, how does that help me in my current operations, particularly on the legal ops side of things? So for example, those notices of illegal content, they're now required to be submitted via electronic form. So hopefully that will free you from dealing with sort of traditional snail mail, which hand typing up URLs and so on. And then also the DSA has put on a statutory footing uh, minimum information requirements without which the notice is not valid. So again, if you think about the, your, your existing machinery that you have in place to comply with your e-commerce obligations and think how you can rework it. On the front end, you could revise your web forms and think how can we change this in light of the minimum information requirements set out into the DSA to raise the quality of the notices we're receiving. You can think about in terms of how can you operationalize this um, statement of reasons obligation that Lorraine spoke about, explaining to users why we've deleted your content, why are we demonetizing your account, why are we placing some other restrictions on your account. You can start to think how can your existing machinery be amended, tweaked, so that you can uh, you know, churn out in an automated fashion or semi-automated fashion these communications to users translated into all the different EU languages that you'll need to cater for. So for the hosting service providers, I think it's not all bad news and there'll be technical investments, but it should improve operational efficiency as well. Thanks, David. That's really helpful pointing out the overlap between e-commerce obligations and the DSA obligations for the hosting services providers. I'm thinking, what are some of the other obligations if we go up a level on the pyramid to the online platforms that apply to them? I'm thinking in particular, some of the obligations around the appeals mechanism that Lorraine mentioned. Yeah, so exactly. Uh, again, it'll be more uh, evolution rather than revolution for the, some of these online platforms. But I think this internal complaints procedure is really interesting because what it's doing is it's putting on a statutory footing now an appeals mechanism for individual recipients of the service. So we've always been able to appeal a decision to remove content or to restrict or suspend our account, whatever it may have been. But what the DSA has now done by establishing this internal complaints mechanism, it is now requiring online platforms to enable and facilitate the submission of sufficiently precise and adequately substantiated complaints. And it's a bit of a fudge. We've a bit, on the one side, we've concise, you know, to the point. On the other side, we have adequately substantiated. And what is that actually going to mean in practice? But if I were an online platform, what I would be doing is reviewing my current appeals mechanism. And I'd be looking at what restrictions are we placing on our users when they're trying to appeal a decision. So are we forcing them to use a limited number of um, prescribed drop-down options? Are we imposing quite low character limits in terms of uh, how much information they can provide us? Are we restricting them from providing attachments? And again, there are really good operational efficiency reasons why you would have a streamlined system in place. But I think given that this appeals process is now in a statutory footing, you know, you should look at these with fresh eyes and consider what amendments could be, it might be appropriate. So 
online platforms could be better off in the long run to beef up their internal appeals procedure and allow for longer but concise submissions. There's also now a statutory multi-stage appeals process, so you've got your entire out-of-court disciplines handling procedure. But if you don't like the outcome of that, you also now will have recourse to out-of-court dispute settlement processes. So again, for it will depend on user by user, the nature of the complaint, but it could be, as you said, better off in the short term, allowing for more lengthy submissions when you're considering whether your initial decision was correct. And there's so many, I think in the interest of time, we probably have to gloss over them, but even I mentioned earlier, the transparency rules around online advertising. To provide all that information directly from the ad itself, will require an investment and changes and overhaul to the user interface of these platforms across laptops, mobile, tablets, across all these surfaces. And that's no small matter. So even those seemingly easy requirements could be large technical lifts for the online platforms. So the engineering work that's required is kind of really starting to stack up there. And I'm conscious that we haven't even mentioned the very large online platforms or very large online search engines. In the interest of time, are there a couple of key aspects of the technical lift that they'll have to implement that you could call out? Yeah, of course. I, I think, it, again, time for time reasons, it makes sense just to look at those marquee obligations around risk assessment and putting in place those mitigation measures. So bearing in mind, these are the intermediaries with 45 million plus users throughout the European Union. The machinery that would be required to monitor and identify and assess risk at that scale across all the different areas that are set out in Article 34, from consumer protection to child protection to data protection. That itself will be a massive undertaking and will be underpinned, I'm sure, by dozens or possibly hundreds of people who are working hard on this, these topics right now. And then for the mitigations, I mean, each and every mitigation could be an, an engineering product project in its own right, especially considering that it will be subject to external independent audit. So I think from a technical perspective and a personnel perspective, we're looking at years of investment. Thanks for giving us that perspective on the, the technical work that's required to support these obligations, David. It's a very lengthy to-do list. And I don't know that I've had a to-do list that's lasted for years, but it seems like that's what's facing um, many, many of the entities regulated by the DSA. Kind of before we finish up our panel today, I want to come back to you, Lorraine. I know you set out, set out for us earlier the inverted pyramid and how it's going to affect different entities. And David's just put that into three dimensions there by describing all the technical work that's needed to support those obligations. I suppose for anyone that's worried about having a years long to-do list, is there anything you've identified from the DSA that maybe overlaps with compliance steps that organizations may have taken for the purposes of the GDPR? Yeah, sure. So I think like the DSA has all these new obligations and compliance officers are understandably overwhelmed with the amount of new obligations that are coming down the track. And I guess not only under the DSA, but under all of the legislation that Olivia mentioned earlier, and then some. So I think it's important to take a step back and take stock of the compliance work that's been done within your organisation, particularly over the last five years in, in, um, in order to comply with the GDPR, but also under numerous other pieces of legislation. So I think one thing to look at is transparency reports. So transparency reports are kind of industry best practice at the moment. Uh, and what the DSA has done is put the obligation to produce those transparency reports on a statutory footing. So the DSA sets out you know, what needs to be included in those reports, but there is also scope for the commission to produce forms, guidance and templates for those reports. 
So I think we could have a situation a bit like privacy policies in the GDPR. So, you know, we all thought when we were drafting these policies in 2017, 2018, that we were complying with Article 13 and 14, so therefore we had a compliant policy. And it wasn't really until the WhatsApp decision in 2021 in relation to their privacy policy that we actually realised that the, the regulatory expectation is a little bit higher and we got more detail. So I think the nature of these transparency reports might develop um, as the DSA beds in, but it does kind of, it is reminiscent of, of kind of the industry best practice as it is. Okay, so some maybe room for evolution and bedding in is this kind of concept in the DSA framework really kind of gets embedded. One of the things that strikes me is we heard a bit even in the panel earlier about risk assessments and audits. Is there any kind of overlap with existing GDPR compliance with those? Yeah, sure. So risk assessments are not dissimilar to the data protection impact assessments that we would prepare where the processing is likely to present a high risk to the rights and freedoms of data subjects. So, you know, in a DPIA, we look at the processing, we look at the risks, and then we seek to apply mitigations to, to lower, to mitigate that risk. So I think under risk assessments, that's essentially exactly what we'll be doing. Um, the DSA is prescriptive and, you know, they must be conducted annually. So I think it's definitely something that you don't want to leave on the long finger between doing these risk assessments as soon as you can. The other thing to mention with the risk assessments is that the supporting documentation needs to be kept for three years um, and we produced on, on request. So it's just something for organisations to keep in mind when they are actually doing their risk assessments. Uh, and then on the audit piece, so under the GDPR, there was no legal obligation to conduct an audit for your compliance with GDPR, although lots of organisations are doing so. And we'll be used to doing compliance audits for security compliance and different things like that. So hopefully it's just a matter of plug and play um, that your statutory obligation to conduct your audits under the DSA if you're a VLOP, can just be um, added to your to your yearly compliance audits anyway. Thanks very much for that, Lorraine. So some overlap with things organisations are doing at the moment, but kind of an enhancement in terms of everything that they have to consider. And I know, as Rob mentioned earlier, it'd be fascinating to see the results of that process in a year's time. Um, so I think we're nearly out of time for this panel. Um, and just to sum up some of the key themes from the discussion today, it seems like we're moving towards enhanced protection in areas that we've seen before, like protecting children and online advertising, but that the level of work that's going to go into supporting all of these new obligations is quite significant, albeit that there are maybe some areas of overlap with common themes that organisations are tackling at the moment. I'd like to say thanks very much to our panellists, to Aoife, Alison, David and Lorraine for sharing all of their insights with us this morning. <laughs>